0: If you have a Bible, look at Isaiah chapter 50. Later we're also going to look at Romans chapter 8 because Paul makes extensive use of the passage in Isaiah that we're looking at tonight in the letter to the Romans, but we'll get there. Uh, This is a passage about trusting God in the dark. And You know, certainly in the time that Isaiah is writing these words, I believe I've mentioned this several times, the second half of the book of Isaiah is written to people for when they are in the exile. And the exile was a really big deal. There was a point in Israel's history where God uh, sent a nation to take them captive, to take them away from their land and take them off into captivity. And the significance of that was that they, everything they knew about God and the way you related to him was that you had to be able to make sacrifices in the temple, in the particular place that God had said, I will, I will meet you here and I will be with you here. And so it's not just that they've lost their homeland. It's not just that many of their friends and family members had been killed, but they also have lost all hope um, in many ways, of being able to worship and relate to God. And to them, it seems that God has abandoned them. This passage tonight starts out with that, with that basic background and that basic understanding. And yet, I think, you know, for us, maybe we haven't experienced something traumatic or as traumatic as that. But I, I think that very much we live in a culture that is full of confusion there's confusion that arises from all kinds of circumstances, but in particular, I think what makes it worse and what it made it worse in Isaiah's day for the people of Israel was not just the circumstances, but the way the circumstances called into question, how do you know what you know? And the philosophers called this the question of epistemology. How do you know what you know? College is a time when a lot of that gets challenged and turned upside down. All of you take freshman seminar. That's at least ostensibly what that class is supposed to be about, helping you think through how do you know what you know? How do you know that this person who views things differently than you isn't right and you're wrong, or maybe you're both right in some way? How do you know what you know? Is it because of just what feels right? Is it because somebody told you this because you read it in a book, because you were able to scientifically test it and verify it? How do you know? You just sort of know by intuition. How do you know what you know? That's a very important question, and it's a question that in our day and age, there are just a multitude of answers to that question. In many ways, the shift from a modern way of thinking to a postmodern way of thinking calls uh, this whole idea of epistemology um, into question. There was a show on, probably most of you guys were maybe too little to remember the show. Anybody used to watch The X-Files? Yeah? Yeah? Some of you did? I don't know if you know this or not, but that was really a show about epistemology. Now, the, the setup of that show every week was there was some uh, either paranormal or unexplained mystery, and there were two FBI agents who were trying to figure out what was going on. There was Agent Mulder, Fox Mulder, and he was a guy who basically trusted his gut. He didn't have you know evidence, really, but he just sort of sensed, that there were explanations beyond the scientific method, that there were realities beyond what you could taste, touch, smell, and see. And so he was always interested and leaning towards supernatural or paranormal explanations. And then there was Scully. And Scully was the the girl on the show, the red-headed girl, if you remember the show. And she not only was an FBI agent, but she was also a medical doctor. And particularly in the early years of the show, do you remember what she would always do to try to figure out what happened? She'd always need to do an autopsy. (laughs) If she could just do an autopsy, then she could come up. And often at the end of the show, especially in the early years, it left it open-ended. In other words, the question of how do you know what happened here? Is it through a gut feeling? Do you follow Mulder? Or is it through the scientific method and examining all the evidence? right? And that in a lot of ways are, is the kind of confusion that exists in our culture. And then when you throw in, well, what does it mean to be a Christian and say that we believe in truth that's been revealed by God through men in a book that we call the Bible, and that throws a whole nother, uh whole, you know, set of um, ideas and maybe mutually exclusive ideas or ideas that how do they fit together. It's a confusing culture. The reason this matters is when things happen that you struggle with, when trials happen, if you're confused about how to even know what you know, it makes every trial, as the Puritans used to say, a double trial. If you're not sure what God thinks about you, then every trial becomes a double trial. So the confusion actually makes the experience that's bad enough even worse. And that's what's going on in Isaiah's day. Because the people have been sent into exile. That's bad enough. But it's making them question their whole relationship with God. And Isaiah comes and says to them, here's how you can know. Here's how you can know. So let's see what God says about this through the prophet Isaiah. Read with me, if you will. Follow along, I guess, as I read Isaiah chapter 50, starting at the first verse. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins, you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Now, here in verse 4, there's a shift. Isaiah is speaking, but now in verse 4, the servant speaks. And we've met him before. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. We've done, this is now the third one. So the servant takes over and speaks in verse four. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the servant who speaks to us here through your word. And we pray that you would give us not only understanding, but open hearts to receive your word for what it is, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when you feel divorced from God? It's a really um, poignant picture that this passage starts with. Probably in this room, you know, at least statistically, if you weren't divorced, probably one of your good friends was, if you don't come from a family divorce. It's a particularly poignant issue in our own day. It has huge effects. It's one of the most traumatic things. Studies say even more traumatic than death for children because you don't really ever get the kind of closure that you do with death of a parent. It's a profound thing. God's people feel like they've been divorced from God. Now, even to to sort of use that picture, presupposes that the Bible, the Judeo-Christian tradition, understands relationship with God as being like a marriage. As a matter of fact, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, it says basically that God created marriage to teach us about his love. Now, that's a pretty remarkable thing. There are a lot of religious ideas out there, a lot of religions, a lot of philosophies, but the idea that the God who has created all things, the holy, sovereign Lord, the transcendent one, who is overall, would marry himself to people such as us is really remarkable and quite unique, honestly. And so, you know, in in some ways, Christianity... Christianity starts out by saying God made us to be married to himself. And what's wrong with the world is that there was a rupture tantamount to a divorce. That ultimately, the core problem at the heart of the universe is a relational rupture. And the existentialists say that we're thrust out into a cold, indifferent universe. But Christianity says something even more tragic. That there's a relationship at the core of our identity and the core of reality that has been severed, pulled apart. This guy, George Steiner, has a great way uh, of describing this. He says this, "...at the maddening center of despair is the insistent instinct, again, I can put it no other way, of a broken contract, of an appalling and specific cataclysm. In the futile scream of a child, in the mute agony of the tortured animal, sounds the background noise of a horror after creation, After being torn loose from the logic and repose of nothingness, something, oh, how helpless language can be, has gone hideously wrong. Reality should, could have been otherwise. The impotent fury, the guilt which master and surpass my identity carry with them the working hypothesis, the working metaphor, if you will, of original sin. Now, he's not a Christian. But he's trying to explain what is at the heart of what's wrong with us. It's not just that we live in a cruel and different universe. It's not just that we're the result of time plus chance plus matter. And that there's no sort of sense of, of being bigger than that. No, the, ultimately what's wrong with us is a relational rupture. And God's people feel it acutely in the exile. They feel divorced from God. But notice how God responds to them. First, he doesn't chastise them for their feelings. He takes their feelings seriously. Now, he's going to respond to their feelings with some arguments. But I want you to notice, first and foremost, he doesn't say, how dare you feel like you've been divorced? He doesn't say, don't feel that way. No, he says, you feel divorced. You feel divorced, but let me help you understand. You think the reason you feel divorced is because I've divorced you. And so your feeling is made even more intense because of a wrong understanding. So let me deal with that, God says. And he starts out, he says, look, If you were divorced, you would have a certificate of divorce. Now, this is not something that you and I would understand culturally, but in Israel, everybody understood this this argument. Because in Deuteronomy, in the law that governed Israel, if you were going to divorce your wife, you had to give her a piece of paper, a certificate of divorce. So God says, if you really are divorced, show me the certificate. Now, the mother that he's talking about in this context is Israel, the nation. So he's saying, if... You as a nation have really been divorced from me. If I've really cut you off and said you are no longer in relationship to me, I no longer care about you, I no longer want to be married to you, if I had really said that and done that, says God, you would know it because you would have a certificate of divorce. Second, he says, did you really think that I've had to sell you off into slavery to pay off my debts? I know that's what it feels like, like you've been sold off, but that's ludicrous. Why? Because God owes no one anything. The very idea that God would have creditors that he's in debt to is ludicrous. Now, I know that a lot of modern people think that God owes them quite a lot, and they think he owes them at least an explanation for why the world is the way it is, but God actually feels no such compulsion. And what he does here is he said, look, you're not divorced. I haven't sold you off to pay off my debts. It's because of sin, your sin, that you were sold. It's because of your sin that you're in the exile. But I haven't divorced you. And so you have to hold together these two ideas that God can love a people and still be committed to them even while dealing with them In very strong terms, what we would call tough love, but that seems to trivialize the idea. To call the exile tough love almost seems blasphemous. It was cataclysmic, to use Steiner's word. It's hard for us to imagine what it felt like and all the ideas that it turned upside down for Israel, but he encourages his people, it's, it's vital that your feelings do not settle reality for you. Understand there is something more solid than what you feel. I know you feel divorced, but you're not. So he encourages his people to use the truth to fight against their doubts and their unbelief. The problem, you see, is not that God has failed to pursue them. The problem is they failed to respond. Look at verse 2. When I came, God says, why was there no one? You see, the exile didn't come out of the blue. God had been telling them and warning them for generations. At one place, he talks about how if my people won't listen, then I will cut them with my prophets. I will send my prophets to cut them to wake them up. But still, it didn't work. And the exile comes. In other words, when we feel divorced, I think often what we do is we instantly want to pin the blame on God. He's not coming through for us. I think that often, whether we realize or not, one of the deep ideas that is lodged in our heart is that God is really the divine pharmacist who exists to fill our prescriptions. We get to write the prescription. We know what we need, after all. And we expect God to come through in the way we want. And if he doesn't, then he better explain himself. But when you come to a passage like Isaiah 50, you find that you're in a very different world. A world in which God really is sovereign. And he doesn't have to explain himself. A world in which God says, the reason you feel so miserable is because you've run away from my love. You've spurned my love. You've spurned my warnings. And yet, even though you feel totally miserable, it's still an expression of my love. But it's vital for you to understand that. It's vital that my word is able to trump your feelings. Now, this is actually one of the most important things you can learn if you want to follow Jesus, is that he has to be able to tell you no. And I think one of the most difficult places where this rubber really meets the road with regard to this is when you feel something and you won't let God tell you you're wrong. When you feel like he must hate me. And he says, no. If I hated you, would I have died on a cross? Come on. If I hated you, if I divorced you, you'd have a certificate of divorce. Do you find a verse in the Bible that says that you've been cut out of my family? No, you find lots of verses like, you know, Jesus saying, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Or Romans 8, what we're going to look at a little bit later. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do those kinds of statements have the ability to trump your feelings? That's the issue. Rather than the exile being proof that God had abandoned them, it was actually proof that he was so committed to them that he was committed to bringing them back to the kind of relationship he made them for. You see, God's people kept running after other gods. They were spiritual adulterers. And it wasn't just offensive to God. It was killing them. Because it's not what they were made for. Their hearts were not made to prostitute themselves To all these other lovers. And it was damaging them. Killing them. What kind of God, what kind of parent would let his children continue to bring great harm to their souls and not intervene? That's what what we have here. The exile was not proof that God had abandoned them. And it was vital that his word come in and explain the circumstances. See, this is a great mercy of God that he doesn't just do things and then leave us scratching our heads, wondering what it means. A lot of, a lot of religions basically operate on that, on that function. Well, the gods must be mad. Let's figure out why, what do we need to do? And unfortunately, a lot of Christians seem to operate that way you know, very superstitious, like things aren't going my way. I must have ticked God off in some sort of way. Let me try and figure it out and let me figure out what I need to do to get back in his good graces. That's the essence of paganism. It's not Christianity. Christianity says that you have a God who loves you, who has married himself to you. I love this hymn by uh, William Cooper, the great hymn writer, who himself eventually went insane. And I I love this, uh, this line because I think he captures this idea perfectly. He says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. But there's no promise that he'll make it plain today or tomorrow. But our hope is that one day he will. One day he will. I love that that hymn, O Heart Bereaved and Lonely. I love that line, and question all you will. His arms of love and mercy are round about you still. Do you understand that your relationship with God, if you're a Christian, is so secure that you can question everything? that his arms of love and mercy are secured by Jesus. And therefore, you can can go to God with whatever you're struggling with, whatever torments you. I don't promise that God will give you the kinds of answers you may feel you have to have. But I do tell you that God has promised to reveal his character in such a way to give you the kind of encouragement you need to keep on trusting. And that's where we go next in this passage because we come to the servant of the Lord. You see, the exile is not enough to sever God's people from their spiritual adultery. It's not enough to bring them to sanity because punishment can never really change your heart. The only thing that could do that was God sending the servant to live and die in our place. Now we know, because I'm not exactly going chronological in the book of Isaiah, I wanted to jump into Isaiah 53, you know, when it was the Holy Week before Easter, because that's one of the richest expositions in the Bible about what Jesus did on the cross and what it means. And so we already covered that. So that's the, the fourth of the servant songs. And it's the one where you find without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the servant that's being talked about. There are places where you may think, well, the servant is Isaiah. But no, Isaiah cannot fulfill all that the servant is said to be. The servant here speaks in verse 4. It's through uh, the servant we, we find that the servant is the one who hears the Lord because the Lord teaches him. And thus he knows the word that can sustain the weary. Look at the the description here and think about Jesus and how this describes him. And really only him. The idea that that Jesus, the servant who comes, comes not just to die, but also to instruct. And he has the knowledge. He's instructed. He has an instructed tongue. He's not just sort of a, a country bumpkin. He's somebody who understands, who studied, and who knows, who is competent to speak a word that sustains the weary. I love that. What word do you need to hear today to sustain you in your weariness? And who are you listening to for the words that you think you need to sustain you in your weariness? The only one who really is competent to give you a word that can truly sustain you in the weariness of soul that is in your heart of hearts is this one, the servant. The servant is the one who is not rebellious. The way Jesus described this one time, he said, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my father. It's my life. And why is that good news for us to see here in verse 5? that I've not been rebellious, I've not drawn back. The reason is this, because we sin willfully. And you know that. I think a lot of people are trying to try to pretend that the only sin they do is sort of against their character and they kind of fall into it by mistake. But if you know anything about your heart, you know that that's a damnable lie. You don't just slip into sin. It's in your heart of hearts. You willingly, willfully rebel against God and what he's made you for. And so do I. And the only thing that can bring comfort to me is that Jesus, just as willfully, went to a cross and stayed there until his work was done. I have not, I have not turned away or been rebellious. Even to the point of death and humiliation. Look at verse six. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. In the Jewish culture in particular, one of the most offensive things that you can do is pull out someone's beard. Do you understand the humiliation and the shame that Jesus experienced on the cross. This is remark- We were talking on Monday night, uh, the guys that are in the Cry of the Soul small group, about this idea of shame and about how- this great irony of shame. Dan Allender, who's going to speak this weekend, has this great quote where he talks about this. God is a God of irony. He chose for his son to be born in shame. He was born out of wedlock in a very traditional culture. So he was born in shame. He lived his life in shame. And then he died in the most shameful manner. Shame is evil's greatest weapon against God. But God takes the weapon of evil and uses it to mock and then destroy evil. Jesus willingly submits to being humiliated and he didn't have to. And what that means is that whatever is your deepest shame has nothing to compare with what Jesus took on the cross. Now, Allender makes this great point. He says, most people in our culture think that shame comes from significant people in your life telling you things that shame you that make you feel bad about yourself but he says no shame biblically speaking is actually different shame is the exposure of nakedness that happens when your foolishness at worshiping a god other than the true and living god has been exposed that the heart of shame is false worship We worship things that have no power to help us. They're impotent and they're ridiculous. And therefore, we should all be deeply ashamed. And it's not enough for you just to tell yourself that I shouldn't be ashamed. You should be ashamed. And the only way to be set free from shame is to put your hope and your trust in the one who took the full extent, everything that shame could pour out. And in doing that, he conquered shame. Because he comes to us with grace and says, your foolishness has been covered. You've been exposed as an idol worshiper. But I'm covering you with my blood. Jesus takes our shame. He suffers humiliating persecution. And you know, in a world that hates the truth, everyone who wants to follow Jesus should expect persecution. If the world hates the truth, and Jesus says this very clearly in a number of places, then you should expect Suffering, persecution, and humiliation. I think in a lot of ways, you know, you know, people in other places in our world suffer a different kind of persecution than we do. For the most part, I think the persecution that's most effective with you guys is to be made to feel if you believe in Christianity, if you believe the Bible, you must have left your brain at the door. To believe that God's word is truth is, is a difficult thing. And will bring you the scorn of many. But you believe in one, if you believe in the gospel, in one who took the scorn. The servant is the one also who is sustained by his trust in the sovereign Lord. I love this. Jesus says a number of times in the gospel of Luke, set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. This is where that phrase comes from. The servant was bound and determined. Nothing was going to dissuade him from going to the cross because Jesus knew that it wasn't enough for him just to teach us things. The idea that Jesus is just a good teacher is ludicrous. And the only reason that could possibly be good news is if you're completely clueless about what's wrong with humanity. We need a whole lot more than just more instruction. Sure, Jesus was a great teacher, but more importantly, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem to die. Even though his friends tried to dissuade him, his friends told him, you're crazy. Remember? And you remember what he said to Peter when he said that? He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was not to be thwarted, and that is your hope. Hallelujah, Jesus could not be dissuaded. Not for his own comfort's sake, not for the sake of people understanding and not thinking him crazy. None of those things had power to dissuade him because he was committed, he was committed to rescuing his people. The servant is the one who models trust in the most difficult of circumstances. Do you understand? Do you understand that darkness, when it talks here about Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You might find this surprising. But the number one metaphor that Jesus uses to talk about hell is not fire. It's darkness. Do you know what Jesus suffered on the cross? Do you remember how darkness covered the earth as the sun hid her face in shame? for what man was doing to her creator. Jesus suffered hell on the cross. There has been no fuller fulfillment of these words in verse 10 than Jesus on the cross. And do you remember, he starts out, the first words we hear Jesus say from the cross, do you remember what they are? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know what that's from? Psalm 22, verse 1. Do you know the last thing that he's recorded as saying on the cross? It is finished. Do you know what that is? That's a possible translation of the last verse of Psalm 22. I think the NIV translates it, he has done it. But in Hebrew, the third person, he and it are the same word. So you could could translate it, it is done, it is finished, or he has done it. In other words, Jesus is meditating on Psalm 22 from beginning to end on the cross. And it's fascinating if you think about that psalm. And if you look at that psalm, we don't have time to look at it tonight. But it's a fascinating psalm. It starts out, it's somebody talking about what it's like to have been put to death by crucifixion. A punishment unknown at the time David wrote the psalm. But not only that, it's somebody talking about it who's experienced it and who's come back from the dead. And he's talking about all of the inheritance that will come from undergoing this experience. It's a bizarre psalm. I often wonder what people must have thought about this psalm before Jesus came. How many must have scratched their heads trying to understand how it all fit together. But here's the point for you and me for tonight. Is that as Jesus was hanging on a cross, dying, he held on to a scripture that utterly contradicted his experience at that moment. His experience at that moment was telling him that God had abandoned him for good. But Psalm 22, what he was meditating on the cross, said, no, this is not the end. The reason Jesus was able to stay on a cross was not because he used some of his divine power to endure something that none of us could endure. No, he did not resort to using the power That was at his disposal. Instead he trusted the word of the Lord. In the ultimate darkness. More darkness than you and I will ever experience. And therefore. You and I don't just have the word of God. The Bible to hold on to in the darkness. We have the word of God incarnate. Who endured the darkness. To prove to us. That whatever you're experiencing. Whatever you feel that proves to you. That God must not love you. There is a word of truth and there is the incarnate word of God who endured the darkness that screams at you. Don't believe what you're experiencing. Don't put your interpretation of what's going on over God's. Whose voice is louder for us? What voice will we hear? Jesus Trusted the Word of the Lord in the dark. And because of that, you and I don't just have the Bible to hold on to. We have Jesus who lived and died in our place. Wow. Now this is what Paul does with this. If you look back at this passage, or, or turning your Bible to Romans eight, Paul takes all of this stuff. You know, the, the servant says, you know, God vindicates me. My trust is in the Lord. And Paul says, this is true for us because God has vindicated his servant, Jesus, because he's not still dead in a grave, but is risen from the dead to show that when he said it is finished, it was finished and he does not need to suffer anymore. It says in the book of Hebrews that it is appointed a man to die once and then to face judgment, and Jesus did that, and it's done, it's finished. Because of that, Paul says, All of these words that God says about his servant, he says to you. You want an example of the idea that we get the righteousness of Christ, that what the servant earned. By enduring and trusting in the words. We don't trust the word of the Lord in the dark. We light our own torches all the time. We're looking for anything we can to get us out of our confusion. We do it all the time. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't look to anything else except the word of God. As he endured the most intense darkness. Right? And you and I get credit for it. All of the things that this passage says about the servant, Paul says about you and about me if we're in Christ. Look at this. Romans 8, start at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now Isaiah 50 says, if God is for the servant, who can stand against him? Who can accuse him and have it prevail? But Paul says, no, that's for us. Why? Because the servant endured. 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then back to Isaiah 50, Paul quoting again, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life, at the right, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. So Jesus does not live to condemn you. Jesus lives To justify you. Who can condemn you? Nobody that can stand up to God. Even your own words. Even your own words. Have no power to stand against God's word. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, they can't because As Paul says in Romans 11, the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. As he says through Malachi, I hate divorce. He's not divorced his people. Nothing can separate them from him. Trusting, you see, is not just a suggestion for how you get through a trial. Trusting God is not just a good idea. Trusting God is the only way to appropriately honor what Jesus did. Jesus died on a cross, not just so you could get out of hell free. I talked about this last week. He died so that you could trust him. Because ultimately, the sin of sins in your heart of hearts is your deep suspicion of God's goodness. And no amount of punishment, no exile can ever change that. Can ever heal that suspicion in your heart. But Jesus dying on a cross has power to melt your suspicion and your unbelief. We're called to trust God's word because Jesus suffered confusion beyond anything you will ever experience. So why would he desert you now? He's committed, right? What are the tortures you try to light? I want you to think about these three questions as I close in prayer. What are the torches that you light? When do you light them? And why? Why is it so preferable to try to find light in so many other places rather than trusting the Lord in the dark? Listen, God will not help you light torches, (laughs) your own torches. In fact, he's in the business of blowing them out so that you can see the true light of the world. And we may, we may really not like that. We may really think that like the exile. He's blowing out all my light. <laughs> What's he doing? Why is he doing this? He must hate me. No. It's only when your lights are blown out that you see reality. And you see him for who he is. And you begin to understand an inkling of what it was like for Jesus to suffer the hell you deserved on the cross. And that's the only thing that can begin to melt your suspicion of his goodness, which is the reason that we light our own torches. Because we think that God isn't going to take care of us. We better do it ourselves. And there's nothing that can change that in your heart of hearts except gazing at Christ and him crucified. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you endured unimaginable confusion, And suffering. And ache. Of soul. And Lord at times. We feel like we know a little bit about. Of what you've. Of what you've endured. And we pray Lord. That rather than. Have our experience. Be proof to our heart and soul. That you don't love us. May it open us up. To begin to to ponder what it must have been like for you to suffer as you did on the cross. And may that begin to argue with our unbelief and to prove to us that you've never abandoned your people and you never will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.